turn in your Old Testament to the book of Leviticus, chapter 17 and verse 11. Now here's a book in the Bible that we seldom read. And one of the reasons we seldom read it is because we find it too, well, complicated. Uh, We find it too detailed. And uh, when people speak about reading the Bible, they usually are not talking about the book of Leviticus. And yet, it is a very important book. You know, there's not a single book in the Bible that is not important. It's all there for us to read and benefit from. But I must say, some of it is more easy to understand than other parts. But take a look at just one particular verse this morning, chapter 17 of the book of Leviticus. So if you start on the left side in Genesis, just work your way slowly to Leviticus. Did you find it? Chapter 17, and look at verse 11. It reads this way. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for life. It is the blood that makes atonement for life. Now, of course, these are the words of God as they were given to Moses. And Moses penned these words, and we still have it today, thanks to the quill in the hand of Moses. It's an interesting portion of Scripture Uh, Speaking of blood, and I know most of us don't like conversations about blood. Certainly we don't like the sight of blood. Certainly we don't like having to clean up blood. Who would? But the Bible speaks a lot about blood. And here it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And, And God goes on to say, and I have given it, well, I have given that blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Uh, Well, as you well know, uh, blood is extremely important. It is a vital fluid for human life. Uh, It's thicker than water. It feels a bit sticky. It hardens or coagulates when it's exposed to the air. And blood, as it runs through your veins, is just a little bit more uh, hot than the rest of your body. Uh, Blood flows in your body at a temperature of around 100.4. That's pretty hot. How much blood you have actually depends on how big you are. Uh, So that a man of 150 pounds will have about one and a half gallons of blood in his body. Now those of you who are in the medical profession, correct me if I'm wrong. Am I right or wrong? I'm looking at two of you. Uh, They're telling me I'm right. (laughs) There are eight types of blood. Does anybody here not know what kind of blood you have? Quite a few of us, include me. I I don't recall. I've been told I don't recall. That might be a problem someday. And blood in your body has three different functions. One is for transportation. It transports oxygen to the rest of your body, to all your organs. But in the same process, it actually transports carbon dioxide back to your lungs where it's exhaled. It also transports nutrients and hormones to your body. Uh, Blood is very important. But it also regulates your body temperature. And it even regulates the pH level, the acidic level in your body. Because nobody wants to be too acidic. I think I've met a few people who are a little too acidic. (laughs) They have to check their blood. 
And blood also protects. It will protect you by providing for your immune system, and it also produces clots where your vessels may be damaged. Uh, blood is extremely important. Now, when Moses penned these words in Leviticus 17 11, he knew nothing about blood, per se. He did not know what I just told you. You now know more about blood than Moses did, and yet he wrote that verse, chapter 17 11. But what Moses did know when he penned those words that I just read to you, he did know that without blood there is no life. He did know that. And he knew that blood was essential. Flesh without blood will die and decay. That Moses knew. And it is that blood that God uses to make atonement for or to pay for our souls, the sins in our soul. He uses blood. That is to say that God sacrifices life in order to pay for the cost of sin. That's rather expensive, isn't it? Uh, to pay for your mortgage, you use a check. To pay for your groceries, you use a charge card. To pay for crime, you give up your freedom. To pay for a Coke, you use cash. Some of you are saying, what's that? It's still out there. But what do you use to pay for sin? The scriptures tell us in order to pay for sin, you have to pay with your life, your blood. What we see here in the Bible is what Christ used to pay for sin. He used his life. He gave his crimson blood. Now what I want you to see this morning is as we run through the scriptures, and that's what we're going to do, we're going to run through the scriptures, you're going to see a crimson thread, a scarlet thread that runs through the entirety of the Bible. A red thread that runs from chapter to chapter, book to book, connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament and connecting your soul to God. A crimson thread. And this morning, we're going to follow that thread. And that thread begins at the very beginning, at the point of creation. If you open in a book of Genesis, you see there at the very beginning that there is a creation of sort already. In eternity past, right there in Genesis 1-1, we see that God created... And part of that creation are his angels. And among his angels is one particular angel named Lucifer. Uh, the name Lucifer means morning star or the one who brings light. So you could get a good idea of what this angel looked like. Yes, he was brilliant. Until he wasn't. You see, he claimed to be like God. He didn't say, I am God. He didn't say, I'm greater than God. He said, I am like God. And in claiming to be like God, he claims to be majestic like God. He claims to have the splendor of God. And as a result of that, he is alienated from God. He's separated from God, not because God reacts in a jealous fit, no, but because God cannot and will not share his glory with anybody or anything. 
And so Lucifer is set aside and cast out of the presence of God. And unfortunately, he was very convincing. He takes a great deal of angels with him. He's cast out of heaven. But there is no crimson thread for Lucifer or these fallen angels. There is no hope. And then we see there in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God creates the rest of the universe. And in that creation, at the end of that creation, he creates man and he creates woman. And what the scriptures tell us is that he created man and woman in his image. The imago Dei, to use the Latin. Now when the Bible says that we are created in the image of God, it doesn't mean we are like God in his splendor or in in his majesty, in his glory. No, far from it. We certainly are not. Even altogether, we don't even begin to compare to the glory of God. But rather, we are created like God in the fact that we do possess intellect. We do possess a will, a volition. We are able to rule. We are able to worship. A dolphin cannot worship. Penguins don't worship. (laughs) We can. We are able to create as well. We are created in the image of God, male and female. And when he saw male and female... He said, this is very good. Let me just emphasize that. He saw male and female, and he, saw, and he said, this is very good. And he placed them in the Garden of Eden, in what the Bible describes as the land of Cush. Maybe to your surprise, the land of Cush today is the region of Ethiopia. Far cry from what the garden used to be. And Adam and Eve needed nothing. They had everything necessary. And God looked at them and said, listen, all this is for you, but stay away, refrain from, do not take any fruit from this tree here in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as I said, they had everything they needed. They had everything they wanted. But unfortunately, they wanted what they were not supposed to have. And because they wanted and took what they ought not to, they sinned against God. And now, too, they are alienated from God. They are separated from God because of sin. Adam plunged mankind into sin. And now everybody that comes from the lineage of Adam, which is all of us here, are sinners, too. And so you see that Adam, mankind, went from no sin to wanting to sin to becoming sin, a sinner, to not being able to not sin. And so they attempted, he and she, Adam and Eve, attempted to cover themselves up, to cover up their shame. How can they hide? And so they took fig leaves, which are big leaves, and they covered themselves with fig leaves. But obviously that didn't work, but that's all they could do. And so in order to cover their shame, in order to eliminate their shame, we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, that God had to strike an animal and take the life of an animal. And the blood poured out, and the life was given, that skin was taken, and they were covered. In order to cover the shame of these two, God had to sacrifice the animal. A life had to be given 
in order to cover the shame of this first couple. And here begins the crimson thread. Not long after that, we see a struggle between good and evil, between two brothers, Cain and Abel. And they were the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer. And maybe you recall that Abel was a shepherd. And Cain attempted to worship God with the fruit of what he had. He was a farmer, so what did he produce? He gave to God of his uh, fruit, of his vegetables, of his labor from the ground. But maybe to your surprise, God rejected what he offered. And the reason why God rejects what Cain offers is because the price for the sin is not an apple, it is not a fruit, it is not a vegetable, but rather it is a life. Blood must be shed in order to pay for sins. We cannot offer to God our riches and expect that our riches will pay for our sins. And that's what Cain did. He was looking to God and said, Lord, I'm paying you what I think I owe you. And God said, no, no, this does not cover the cost of your sins. Your guilt costs much, much more. Abel, on the other hand, took of his best flock and he slaughtered it. And he let the blood pour out. The blood poured to the ground and the ground absorbed its blood. A life was taken and his sins were covered over. Not removed, just covered over. And you'll see what I mean in a a little bit. You see, Abel was very much aware of his unworthiness. And he realized that the price of his sin was a life. And so he offered a life. And the crimson thread grew longer. Now Cain, in in a jealous fit, ambushed his brother Abel and spilled his brother's blood, took his brother's life. But this scarlet stain was not going to help Cain, uh, but rather... Because he was a man of neither faith or repentance, because of the depth of his hatred, Cain suffered greatly and was unforgiven. And then years passed, and the world became more and more populated, and God called a man by the name of Abraham to be his follower. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, God made a blood covenant with Abraham. A covenant that is a lasting, unconditional commitment to Abraham and even his descendants. Our God is a God of covenants. And to seal this commitment, to seal this covenant, God slaughtered animals. Several animals. And he divided them in half... And he made a path, a bloody path down the middle. And God walked through that path saying to Abraham, May I be like these bloodied carcasses if I ever break my covenant with you. God cannot die. In other words, God cannot break his covenant. But he walks through the blood. The blood once again flows The blood was plentiful. 
And then if you move on to Genesis 22, you see that Abraham sets out on a God-required three-day journey to a place called Mount Moriah. And he takes his son Isaac with him. And there he is to make a sacrifice. He is to take a life and let the blood flow in order to cover, pay for his sins. And to his shock, he learns that it is his beloved son Isaac who will be that sacrifice. What gore, what tragedy, hard for us to fathom. And as they approach the top of Mount Moriah, young Isaac turns to his father in chapter 22, verse 8, and says, but dad, where's the animal we're going to sacrifice? And I imagine that his father was filled with anxiety when he said, son, God will provide. Abraham did not know what was going to happen. But he knew that he could trust God. He knew that he had to obey God. And when the time came, he took his son, placed him on the altar, and raised his dagger to sacrifice his son. And that's when the voice of God restrained his hand. And there God provided instead a ram. A ram that would be sacrificed. Its life would be taken, the blood would flow, and the crimson thread stretches longer. We see that crimson thread yet again in biblical history when you look to the story, the account of Moses. If you look in Exodus chapter 12, when the people of Israel were getting ready to escape from Egypt after having been enslaved for 400 plus years, we learn that God is going to show himself and rescue his own. God promised that those who followed his instructions very carefully, they would be safe. And here are the instructions God gave. Each family was to take a lamb, an unblemished lamb, They were to slaughter it. They were to set aside the blood of the lamb and roast the lamb thoroughly. And then they were to take that blood, having consumed the lamb completely on what becomes Passover. Whatever they did not consume, they were to put in a fire. Don't leave it for tomorrow. Take that blood, however, and I want you to sprinkle that blood, brush that blood on either side, left and right of the doorway, and over the top as well. And every family that did so would be spared the agony of what would come about that evening. As the angel of the Lord would come, no matter who you were, if your doorway was not painted with the blood of the Lamb, the firstborn son in that home His life would be taken. He would die. And indeed, that night the angel of the Lord did come. And for many, thousands upon thousands of people who ignored what God said, their firstborn died. It was taken. But for those in those homes who did spill the blood on the doorway... 
the angel of the Lord passed over that home, they did not die. They were spared. They were spared the judgment of God. Until this day, I imagine you know, the Hebrew people still celebrate Passover. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. However, as people who know Christ, we know far more about Passover than they. But again, we see that crimson thread streaming through the chapters of the Bible. We see it again in the book of Joshua, chapter 2. The people of God were preparing to enter into the promised land. But in order to enter the promised land, they had to spy it out. And so they enter into the land. Two spies, two Israelite spies, enter the land of Jericho in advance before the armies come and invade and take over that city. And it was this woman by the name of Rahab, a prostitute, who protected the spies. And the reason she protected the spies was because she examined her own life. And she examined the word of God and the actions of God. And despite her brokenness, despite the fact that she was selling her body for money, she took a look at who God is and placed her faith in God instead. From a shattered life to a restored life. So strong was her faith in God that she's mentioned later on in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 for being such a woman of faith. And Rahab allowed these two Hebrew spies to escape the city of Jericho by letting them down a window from her apartment on the city wall. And she used a scarlet rope, a red rope. And as they were climbing down, they said to her, in order for you to be rescued from the invading armies, this is what we want you to do. Take this rope and tie it to your window. And when we see that red rope on your window, we will leave your home alone. We will leave your family alone. And indeed, that's what she did. And she was the only, hers was the only family that survived the raid. The city was completely destroyed. The people were overcome But not Rahab, not her home, because she left that red cord on her window. You see, my friends, the red rope in her window was a sign of her faith, and it led to her rescue. It led to her salvation. She was not destroyed. And that scarlet rope, the color of blood rope, worked for Rahab very much like the Passover blood on the doors did for the people in the Exodus. (laughs) rescued her that crimson thread shows to us that the red color is actually important as we look through the scriptures we see it again that red thread in the curtains in the temple we even see it when young a young baby born by the name of Perez I guess he would have to be young if he's a baby the baby is born And a red cord is put around his heel, around his ankle. And from him would come the lineage of Jesus Christ. You move on to 2 Samuel 24. 
We see David and the kingdom of Israel and Judah when the people of Israel and Judah had very little regard for God. When their sins had amassed, their guilt weighed them down, when their consideration of God barely existed, when their honor for God was like a candle in a wind, ready to be extinguished. Their hearts became calloused. King David fell before God and he repented of his own sins and he confessed the sins of the people of his nation. You see, at this point, they were being threatened by God's judgment. Their iniquities were set before the eyes of God. And so what does David do? He sacrifices for God. He builds an altar. And in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David goes again to Mount Moriah. And there he's going to build an altar, but he discovers that somebody now owns that piece of land. A man by the name of Arauna. And Arauna offers to David, says, listen, this is my property, but I'll give it to you. After all, you are the king. And look at what David says. He says, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. And so he buys it. And he builds an altar. And he sacrifices an animal. And the blood flows. And God's judgment is taken away. And the crimson thread continues. David is not allowed to build the temple where God will be worshipped. But his son Solomon is. And so Solomon builds that temple. After he had collected all the timber, all the materials, all the furnishings, all the gold necessary for that temple, he would build it on Mount Moriah. It was a grand temple, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high, very similar to the dimensions of this building, inlaid with gold and precious metals, handcrafted furniture. If you were to enter the temple courts, what you would see, first of all, would be this basin, a laver, where the priest would first purify his hands and prepare himself for the sacrifice. And after the laver, there would be a a place for the blood sacrifice. The life of an unblemished lamb would be given. Then there would be the Holy Room, and after that, the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. That is where the blood of the Lamb would be sprinkled on that Ark of the Covenant. The red blood. It would be a means, at least for now, by which God would patiently not respond to the sins of the people. God would say, I will judge these sins later. Just keep sprinkling the blood. In fact, in Romans 3.25, we're told that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his divine patience, he had passed over former sins. That golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, would symbolize the one who would come one day to actually pay for the sins of a people. The crimson thread, we learn, represents a person. The prophets also spoke of this blood. 
The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 118, he says, Come, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. And Isaiah identified this crimson thread 750 years before Jesus Christ went to the cross. He is so accurate, you would think that he was standing right next to the cross when he's writing these things. The prophet identified the one who would pay for our sins. He told us in Isaiah chapter 53 that the Savior would be despised and would be rejected. He told us that this one who comes to shed his blood, that he would be struck and afflicted. That he would carry our sorrows. That he would be wounded for our transgressions. And if you know the rest of the story, you know exactly that that's what Christ did. He was beaten until he was unrecognizable. His hands and feet were pierced. On his head was a, a crown of thorns that cut through his flesh. And his blood gushed out and fell to the ground. His life was given so that we would be able to live. As you would imagine, the apostles echo these truths. Peter mentions in his first letter, he says, He himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And you see that crimson thread take us all the way to the cross. That thread takes us to Jesus Christ. That red line takes us to our Lord and our Savior. It takes us all the way to Golgotha, that hill of skulls, a hill of bones where Jesus Christ was crucified. And what we learn is that Jesus Christ is actually the better prophet. He's actually the better priest, the better sacrifice. He's the better king. He is the object of our faith. He is the better covering. Eric Raymond writes that his blood is a divine bath for your soul. And all these, my friends, were pictures of Jesus Christ. Whether you're talking about the animal that was slaughtered in order to clothe Adam and Eve, or the sacrifice offered by Abel, or the sacrifice offered by David, or the carcasses seen in Abraham's time, or that red scarlet rope used by Rahab. It's all the picture of Jesus Christ. And the need for the blood of Christ for your own soul. It's a picture of not only who Christ is, it's a picture of who, what Christ would do. Jesus Christ has gone into that holy place. He has become your sacrifice. He has spilled his blood. He has given his life for yours. The cost of your sin is your life. And Jesus Christ instead has given his life in order for you to live. Amen.
His for yours. Why? Because life is in the blood. And he gave up his life in order that you would live. And he welcomes anyone who would come to him based on his blood, not your own. He's able to save completely. And he alone is able to make you whole. But the thread does not stop at the cross. I want you to see one more place where that thread is going. That scarlet thread takes you into eternity. It takes you into the end of time. The scarlet thread. And that's because the cross was not the end for Jesus Christ. See, we we joined here this morning not to worship a dead Savior, a martyr. No, we worship one who lives. He is resurrected. And that blood takes us to him, the one who lives. The cross was not the end for Jesus Christ. It was the end of our condemnation. The cross was not the end of Jesus Christ. It is the beginning of our new life. Three days after his burial, Jesus Christ rose again. This is not religious folklore. It's historical fact. He ascended on high. And he lives today. We worship and praise a risen Savior. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. My friends, Christ has shed his blood for you. That you can be forgiven. That you can know new life, true life. For whomever Jesus Christ has died... He has also risen again. And you too can raise again and never know death, spiritual death. Your soul can be in the presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever. The marks of Christ's sufferings are still in his hands and on his feet and his side. If you were to see Christ today, you would still see his scars. But the stain of your sin can be removed completely. The prophet Micah chapter 7 verse 19 says that God will cast our sins into the deepest of oceans. That is to say, no one can retrieve it. No one can hold it against us when Christ forgives us. Your name is inscribed in the book of life. And my friends, it will never be removed. In fact, we read in the very last book of the Bible about this eternity that God promises. He says, but nothing unclean will ever enter this eternity. Neither will anyone who does what is detestable or false enter into this eternity. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life they will enter eternity. And you do so through the blood of Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Him. Give your life to Him. And He too, He alone will save you too for eternity. Your name in the book of life.
how good it is to be able to worship and know a risen Savior. Follow that bloodline. It will take you to Christ. It will take you into eternity. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your shed blood. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for the depth of your love, for the forgiveness you give, and how you alone are the means by which we can know eternal life. To God be the glory, great things he has done, and we worship and praise you. Amen.